Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Dewing Grain are independent and local grade traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, they can offer you the best strategies to achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Each week on our podcast, we begin with the Dewing Grain Market Report, giving you up-to-date information and analysis, followed by Farm Chat, where we catch up on agricultural issues with a guest or two while sampling a beer. Andrew's favourite bit. So let's start with Andrew Dewing and this week's Market Report. Welcome to the Market Report. What follows are my thoughts or gut instincts on what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decision to trade is yours. Market report for week commencing the 20th of March. I think before we go on to discuss prices, I think it's worth clarifying that last week there was an awful lot of major news kicking about. And if we start off with it in chronological order. So, obviously, the banking crisis looks to have been averted, but... There still seems to be an awful lot of news kicking about. So the Silicon Valley Bank, obviously the Fed stepped in to protect investors there. The UK arm was sold for a pound to HSBC, but this then led to Credit Suisse, who probably middle of last week looked like they were going to go absolutely pop. And this, this did spread panic in the banking sector. Now, obviously, the Swiss government stepped in with a, I think, £45 billion bailout. It remains to be seen if investors feel that's enough. Another US bank was rescued by other major US banks overnight because the Fed said it wasn't going to step in, so they've rescued that. I mean, Warren Buffett came out with a brilliant line, which was, you only get to see who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. So I guess we'll see which banks are swimming naked. At the minute, it's stabilised. Bank shares seem to be okay, but there is a niggle in the back of people's minds. The Russian grain corridor is, as I speak, still being negotiated. Beginning of the week, Russia said, no, no, we're not involved in any negotiations yet. No one's contacted us. Then in the middle of the week, the Russians came out and said, right, we've agreed 60 days. And then the UN have said, no, we've agreed 120. So looks like a Russian power play. If it is only 60 days, that automatically halves the number of vessels that can get processed again, because I think it's taking about 30 days for vessels to get inspected. So it's just another Russian power play. We'll have to see what happens. But as I sit here, the Grain Corridor looks like it will be agreed. It's just the length of time seems to be the haggling issue. One thing that did crop up in the middle of the week, and I do think is worth drawing people's attention to, is that the government, uh, the Conservative government, have quietly been touting their latest trade deal with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So this is an Asian trading pact. Now, I must admit, I looked this one up, and what they're saying is that this will give access to you know a huge Asian market for a lot of UK businesses. What they've not highlighted, and what did come out on Radio 4, is that as part of this deal, the UK has to allow in palm oil and other associated palm products tariff-free. So I think it's worth highlighting this. Palm is one of the most environmentally destructive products on the planet. You know, not only do they have to rip up rainforests and natural habitat to plant it, they then burn it 
when it reaches its end of its life in order that they can try and regenerate the soil to plant more. Uh, Not only that, I think it's just absolutely ridiculous. I mean, I'm kind of hoping Minette Batters is behind the scenes arguing this one because it's another nail in the coffin for food security, UK industry, i.e. the crushers, the Aussie rape crushers in this country. It just seems totally bizarre. It seems like it's another, oh, don't worry about agriculture because... We've got, you know, lots of other services we can offer that we can exploit. But I think that's one that's worth keeping an eye on and certainly maybe having a chat with your local MP about. Because, yeah, palm oil potentially coming in tariff-free in the next few years is just another competition in the market. We've also had Argentinian inflation hit 100%. So we're discussing inflation of about 7-8%, you know, and, and how ruinous it is. Over in Argentina... They're now looking at printing new banknotes to cope with a 100% inflation. The IMF will probably step in to rescue them, but back in the 1980s, Argentina defaulted on loads of debt. It looks like they're going to be doing it again. And not only that, their agricultural sector, which is where they generate an awful lot of foreign exchange, soybeans, corn, is in trouble. They have this enormous drought. The crop size is definitely down. I mean... If you put inflation on top of that, how the agricultural sector is going to keep functioning is a bit difficult to see at this point in time. I mean, obviously it will, and farmers will have to export something to get money in, but I think the government in Argentina is not helping that situation at all. And unless they can get this inflation under control, and unless the IMF can step in, there's an awful lot to do there to rescue this country. Another note is that there were an awful lot of international tenders last week the Egyptians did a classic of saying, no, we've got enough wheat for the next six months. And then they stepped in and bought 120,000. China easily cleared 600,000 tonnes of corn from the US. And Algeria bought about 540,000 tonnes of wheat in a tender. So there is still demand out there. And these you know, North African countries still need to buy. And with prices where they are, you know, it looks good for them. And it, these are good levels to buy at. So... I can see that the international tender is continuing. And then the question mark will be, how much more does China buy? Brazil has got an enormous soybean crop, but they are struggling to get it out of the country. Boats are queuing up in ports. So there are issues with supply there. And as we know with China, they just won't wait. They'll just plough in. So coming back to the price levels, I mean, this week we've seen prices edge back a little bit more Feed barley X farm, you're probably at 185. Feed wheat is down to about 203. And oilseed rape would be about 390. Again, the oilseed rape market is flummoxing the trade everywhere. It's oversold. I think everyone accepts that there is ample supply from Australia and a, a slackness of demand in the EU. But globally, there are still an awful lot of issues to tackle. Not least, I think India's oilseed rape crop is now being hammered by rain after they said they've had a huge crop coming. So there still seems to be very conflicting messages out there. But, you know, it's that old saying, the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay uh, liquid. So, you know, we'll have to watch this one carefully. Going forward into new crop on the new crop values, we're seeing feed barley around the 180. We're seeing... Feed wheat around the 195 at Harvest X Farm, and rapeseed is sitting around 395 for Harvest X Farm. 
as ever with the new crop market, values have come under pressure from what's happened in the old crop. But going forwards, that market still has a lot to play for. The weather issues still aren't settled and it looks like that Australia probably won't have another enormous wheat crop. We obviously know about Ukraine. They're going to be well down. There is dryness in Russia and Argentina obviously has its own problems. So new crop, a bit more to play for, obviously more time in that market for things to change. And funnily enough, where we've seen the old crop values come down quite sharply, New crop values have come down, but not as rapidly, which kind of shows that there's a bit of friction in that market. Anyway, with that, I think we'll leave it there. As I say, there was a lot of news last week. Roll on this week. Let's see how the banking crisis pans out and have a good week's trading. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours. Advertising on this podcast works. Yeargrain Central Grain Store is delighted to announce that all available storage capacity has now been sold. If you want sales and success, please contact East Coast Design Studio on 01603 859 390. Right, so, with Andrew being away for two weeks, we've decided to shake up the podcast a bit. And, you know, Andrew likes doing his own little thing, but I must admit, you know, Joey and I said, let's do something a bit different. So... What I mean, I've got Joe here. Hello. Hello. Hello, Joe. Now, we do have a very special guest, actually, and this is amazing. So, this gentleman has discovered probably one of the greatest naval historical artefacts since the Mary Rose. And I think it could be argued that this find would be even bigger than the Mary Rose. And we have Julian Barnwell with us. Oh, good afternoon, and thanks for having me along for the podcast. Now, Julian, thank you very much for doing this, because you are a very popular, busy man. But, I mean, what you've done for Norfolk and British history, I think, is absolutely phenomenal. And I think it was this, there was you, your brother Lincoln, and James Little. Is that right? That's right, yep. So we found the Gloucester, um, which sank in 1682, May the 6th, and it had the future King of England, the Duke of York, on board, with the nobility of the time. So we're talking John Churchill. We've obviously had all his, it's like a royal palace, it was a floating palace, and they were definitely having a good time because they had lots of wine and an orchestra, but it's, what I love about the historical account is the what-ifs, yeah. you know, what happened if they'd have drowned on that fateful day. So, I mean, let's come back a stage. You and your two colleagues discovered the, H, the HMS Gloucester, is that right? Well, you call it His Majesty's ship, but you don't use the initials HMS. Okay. Uh, our professors from the UEA have pointed that out. So, uh, <laughs> so we generally refer it to as the Gloucester. The Gloucester. Yep. And this boat set sail from where? Well, basically the idea was to pick up the Duke of York from the Thames Estuary to yep. go to Scotland, to Edinburgh, to collect his pregnant wife. Now, James, he was a Catholic, so he'd only just come back into favour. And the idea was to get his pregnant wife back to England to give birth to hopefully a future heir. <laughs> And what year was this? This was... 1682. 1682. So he left London on the Gloucester and was sailing up to Scotland to get his wife so the child could be born in England. Indeed. And there's another six or seven vessels there, another ships as well. And on board was uh, supposed to be Samuel Pepys, but he decided to jump ship onto the Royal Yacht Catherine at the last minute because the Gloucester was overcrowded and full of pomp. (laughs) Now, Samuel Pepys, I mean, here is a guy who chronicled the Great Fire of London. Yep. Now, was that before or after this? That's before. So he survived that. 
and then he dodges a ship that ultimately sinks. I mean, Christ. I know, I know. But the Duke had been in lots of battles. Both the Stuarts were very much into their Royal Navy, as mm. was Peeps, of course. So the Gloucester served in Battle of Sol Bay of Southwold, mm-hmm. Battle of Lowestoft. You had the Anglo-Dutch Wars. And what happened? It was a navigation dispute on board the Gloucester. So effectively, the Duke being the, the High Admiral, yeah. he had a pilot on board called Ayres. And there was a massive discussion going on about which route to take. Because what you have to remember, there's no charts no navigational charts. It's all local knowledge. Right. Uh, so they knew there was the Yarmouth Sands, but they had to work out a way to go past the Yarmouth Sands. And the Duke wanted to get to Edinburgh as quick as possible. So he took a shortcut, which right. obviously failed. So he took this shortcut, and obviously the captain has to obey him. Well, by rights, the pilot, and it actually is an exhibition on at the Norwich Castle at the moment, and yeah. there is the classic what-ifs, and you've got these scenarios, this fantastic um, debate from all the contemporary uh, court-martial and accounts. And the pilot should have ultimate rule. You know, that is the, the number one person on board. Right. Who's going to argue with the Duke? Because potentially you're going to lose your head. Yeah. I mean, this is mind-blowing. So the fleet of boats... And then was it just the Gloucester that... Sank? Yes, so the Mary Yacht was yeah. in front. Yeah. There's a typical horrible day in the North Sea. Stormy, east-northeast winds, gales, early hours in the morning. Yeah. The Mary Yacht was in lead, and they were doing the sandings with the, you know, the lead weights. And rather than firing a cannon, they raised some flags as a warning <laughs> at half five in the morning. That didn't get picked up in time. And then what happened, the Gloucester hit the sandbank and smashed the rudder off. So immediately what happened, all the water starts flooding into the stern section. Unfortunately, the helmsman got killed. And then they tried to save the Gloucester by deploying an anchor and pumping out all the water. But she sank within 45 minutes to 60 minutes in the early hours of the morning. And the Duke, he had to climb out of the stern. So having realised that they're going to lose the Gloucester, he gave um, the order to abandon ship because no one could until he gave that order. He climbed out of the back into a rowing boat in just his underwear. (laughs) Here's a thought. I mean, I imagine they were pretty expensive underwear. Well, it might have been silk. (laughs) I don't know. But then what, of course, happened is people were trying to get on board the rowing boat. So you then have John Churchill, who's became the first Duke of Marlborough, yeah. uh, and the inner circle who were there to protect the Duke and basically stop people from capsizing his vessel. And he then got picked up by the uh, uh, Marriott. So how many were on the Gloucester, roughly? Well, normally, because she's at peace, yeah. there'd be about 350. But because you had all the servants, you had an orchestra, you had all the nobility... <laughs> And there was no manifest. We can't find a manifest. So we think about 450 to 500 people. And it's not a very big ship. Christ. third-rate man of war. So it had been quite tight for space. I mean, that is phenomenal. 450 people roughly on board. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a band. Yeah, an orchestra. So we found a mouthpiece from a trumpet. And again, in the exhibition, you can see some artefacts that we've rescued. But we've found 17th century music for the professors, the research they've done of what they were playing on board. And people have been doing baroques locally. There's amazing musical shows yeah. based on the Gloucester story. Good God. So, yeah, half, sort of half five, six o'clock in the morning, you yep. think it, it went down. Yep. And how many were lost? Sadly, well, we used to think about 130, but further research is showing now to 250 people. Blimey. And that wasn't just the sailors. That included nobility as well. Right. Okay. Yep. I mean, it sounds like a party at your house, Joe. Right, doesn't it, eh? All this nobility and bands. So then the Gloucester was lost. Mm -hmm. I mean, what did they do? Did 
They, did they carry on to Edinburgh? Okay, so the Duke actually then went on to another boat and carried on the journey. Yeah. There was a court-martial with the pilot straight away. Oh, my so God. he was put in prison. And they actually wanted to execute him at sea, but they waited till they got to land. <laughs> yeah, but then Lady Roxburgh, sadly, she lost her husband. So she commissioned, she chartered a vessel, a fishing smack, from Great Yarmouth to go back to the Gloucester, to the site, the wreck site. Right. And to try and recover her late husband's body because bodies are getting washed up on the coast. They couldn't find it, but also there was a contemporary salvage job done as well, where they were trying to... Uh, they used hooks. They recovered sails and rigging. Okay. Uh, so they did try and get what they could from the Gloucester. But the Duke made it back. And, of course, you've got to think about political spin. Mm. He was actually very... And the reason Ayers took the, uh, the blunt of the blame, the, the pilot, because the Duke couldn't be seen to make the wrong decision. Uh. So there was a bit of a cover-up going on there. And then I think within a few weeks, he was let out of jail with a full pension. So you can see what happened there. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I was going to say, they they didn't. They they, didn't execute him. They didn't execute him. He was the four guy. Oh, and then just to top it off, the the Duke (laughs) then makes these fantastic medals. And he mints these medals. And there he is on the front of the coin. There's the Gloucester sinking, a load of rocks. And and it shows that he was fine and he was more powerful than the North Sea. Oh, okay. The ultimate spin. Blimey, yeah. But the knock-on effect was John Churchill actually lost a bit of confidence and, and faith in the leadership of the Duke of York, James II. Yeah. And when we get to the Glorious Rebellion in 1688, Churchill was on the Duke's side at the beginning of the war and right. then actually went against him. And that's how he ends up losing his throne and goes back into exile. Blimey. So there's a lot of, per- yeah, the, a lot of knock-on the, effects. The history in this. Mm. I mean, as I say, that's why it probably is... Yeah, greater than the Mary Rose, because you're right, the knock-on effects from just this one ship is phenomenal. I mean, the Mary Rose is a different period, and it's fantastic in its own right. Yeah, so yeah. I, I can see where you're coming from, but we tend to say this is Norfolk's equivalent to the Mary Rose, but it's very much about 17th century uh, yeah. maritime history. But to have all these key political figures on board, if we, you, know, you can't beat them. It's quite special. Yeah, well, it's phenomenal. Yes, yeah, so they collected his wife, and then she obviously came back and gave birth yep. in England. Yep. Okay, so that part was completed. Yes. And then, as you say, the ramifications of what happened on that day, specifically, yep. went all the way through history. Absolutely. This is absolutely mind-blowing for Norfolk. Yeah. I think we'd better... Let's go back to the three of you found it. So, before we even forget that, there's also another link to the Americans as well, because... There is an ancestor that was associated with Washington. Good point. So on board was another another part of the inner circle for the Duke was George Legg. Now, George Legg's mother was Elizabeth Washington. Now, we had no idea of this, but what we have done is we found a wine bottle. A lot of the wine bottles in the 17th century started having seals on them, which is the coat of arms. And one of the, the bottles has got the coat of arms of the Washington family, Stars and Stripes. So there is now a direct link to the Washington family through George Legg. And you can see that in the exhibition as well. And it's a stunning bottle. It really is. Oh, did I mention we found wine? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> That's a bit of a shame because Joe doesn't like wine, right? But I do. <laughs> so come on then. So go on, wine. So, yeah. so, so we've recovered, rescued 149 bottles. Not all of them have been intact, but over the years, bottles get exposed. And yeah. 29 of them have still got gas in them. They're corked. Right. with gas called eulage and liquid. So we've had some of the bottles scientifically tested and we've identified French wine, possibly Hortbriand, because that's what they were drinking at the time, and English wine, would you believe? 
and we've had it recreated, and it's 4% ABV. You can drink a couple of pints and still feel okay. <laughs> but those bottles, where are they? So they're in, currently in the Castle Museum. Castle Museum. So the exhibition runs until September, so you can see all these amazing artefacts and the history, you know. And there's lots of loans from national museums. Right. So Blenheim Palace, we went to meet the relatives and the trustees. They've loaned us a painting from John Churchill. Uh, and they're stunning. And yeah, there's some very, very... And there's also our story and the diver trail. Lots yeah. to see. Now, we will come on to that. But again, you see that you've just dropped in another link to the American president there. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is... Yeah, this really is the most amazing Norfolk history ever, isn't it? And that's the benefit of having the University of East Anglia. So Professor Claire Jarrett and Dr Ben Redding have been researching not just the wrecking of the Gloucester, but what her whole service is and, and the rich history and all the battles. Yeah. But then you start looking at in the archives to all the great families who are on board, and that's when the artefacts suddenly actually become real because yeah. you relate them to families. Yeah, it all comes to life, doesn't Indeed. it? Absolutely. And just out of interest, how many battles had the Gloucester been in? Well, we just saw well, lots. Uh, and again, there'll be a, a published book covering all this, but okay. the, the two that really sit home is the Battle of Lowestoff and Sol Bay, which are just key moments in our history yeah. where we took on the Dutch. And one. Uh, most battles. <laughs> Not all of them. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's like an amazing quick snapshot of what we're looking at. The next question is, how on earth did we come to this? How did you get to that point where you say, we're going to go and look for this? What actually happened? How did you get to that point? Well, I can definitely blame Lincoln for this one. But I'm really pleased to say, as printers, that it started off in a book. And he got recommended to buy this book, which is all the British shipwrecks around the, around the Isles. And it was nine years in the making by Richard Lyon and Bridget Lyon. So he, Lincoln brought the East Coast volume and was just working off the Norfolk coast, going back, going back, going back, inspired this fantastic word called cannons, and then realised it had the Duke of York, the future King of England, on board. And off the back of that, reading that one paragraph, he phoned up and said, you're never going to believe what's off our coast. Should we go and find it? And of course I said yes. But of course, then we realised we needed a bigger boat, a survey boat, specialist equipment. By the morning, I'd phoned up Barclays, got hold of a manager, which is quite rare these days, and managed to secure a marine mortgage. So the time we had another chat about it, I said, well, it's all right, it's all sorted. We've got a marine mortgage, and let's go off and look for it. And what year was that? Well, that's 2002. 2002? Yeah. So four years yeah. of going from low stuff to the survey zone, mowing the lawn up and down with magnetometers. You know, we found lots of 18th century shipwrecks, ignored them, kept focused on that up for the Gloucester. And then finally in 2007, got the perfect target, perfect reading on the magnetometer. That is amazing. So did you teach yourself how to use the magnet? Yep. Yeah. So yep. yeah. 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 No, it's all self-taught. Through people we know, got good connections. But it was um, about 5,000 nautical miles going backwards and forwards from site to survey, lots of long days. And actually, we thought, you know, we had a great time as an adventure, but we never quite... Well, when we found it, it was just like, oh, this is just another level, just so euphoric. So, okay, so you found lots of other shipwrecks. Yes. And some of them are buried. Yeah. So even when you're using a magnetometer, you're getting a perfect reading, but it doesn't always mean the actual sites above the seabed. So then we introduced this brilliant guy called Tiny Little. So bear in mind, we're already on an 11-metre survey vessel. We needed to shift some sand. So Tiny was recommended to us. He just rode the Atlantic single-handedly, so he just had a hell of an adventure himself. <laughs> and the reason we went to see Tiny is because he had an ex-Royal Navy dive vessel, which is 24 metres. So we had, yet again, another bigger boat. 
where we're going to have compressors, we've got galley, we can stay out to sea three or four days, fill our own tanks. And it was a whole different operation. So we had lots of good fun. God, blimey. This is, yeah, this is a proper boys' own adventure, Absolutely. isn't it? Yeah, hilarious. And he owns a pub. That's for good measure. <laughs> well, you better, hang on, you better, you better plug his pub. What pub is That's it? That's the Alexandra in, in Norwich. There the we Alex. go. CHB is what you need. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, we got the plug in for the pub yeah. there. So, uh, yeah, our four listeners will go. So that'll be good. <laughs> so all these other shit, how did you know to okay. ignore them? Brilliant question. So a lot of them didn't have cannons, so that's easy. Okay, yeah. Pipes are really quite significant. So we're finding broken pipes and the bowls. You can date sites from the shape of a bowl. Okay. Um, As in smoking pipes. Pipes, absolutely, yeah. clay yeah. pipes. Um, but then, <coughs> then in 07, we got the the perfect reading on the magnetometer. So I would normally be in the water, Lincoln would be up top because he's a better skipper than I. Mm. But I had a hernia, so I had a load of stitches in my groin. I had all my kit on. I was trying to get into the water. I could feel the stitches tearing. I said, Lincoln, you've got to go in. I can't do this. It's just, sorry. <laughs> so he gets to dive the wreck for the first time using my dive gear. <laughs> That's not fair, is it? Um, so when he landed, just, I mean, it was fantastic. He landed surrounded by cannons. Right. Absolutely, whoa. But of course you it, you know, it's not 100% it's the Gloucester it could no. have been a foreign flag it could have been Dutch or it could have been another man of war called the Kent which sank in 1672 right. so we then had to go work out a way to identify the site but what we did know is we had a very significant historic site with lots of cannons right and it was the cannons were the thing that were like yeah absolutely we know yeah. now we know we got a man of war yeah that is amazing so when was that dive that you found it. That, so that was, was June 2007. June 2007. Okay. Yeah. We got the smoking gun. So we found some spoons, which we got conserved. And the maker's mark on that spoon had date 1674. Hmm. And it was English origin. But that proved it wasn't the Kent. It didn't 100% prove it was the Gloucester. Right. And there's still question marks. You know, we assumed it was the Gloucester, but we had 100% proof. Yeah. And it needed 100% proof. So we got recovered the ship's bell. Now, the ship's bell normally has the name on. Another one for Lincoln. <laughs> Him and I were diving together on this particular day. And he said, oh, take me to the bow section, because I knew the, knew the area very well. So I was leaning in towards the bows. At the corner of his eye, you know, it's a curved shape and spied the ship's bell. So brotherly love. He let me swim past. He then spots the bell, grabs my fin, pulls me back and says, look what you just swam past. So, <laughs> and I one's a brother. But then, no, seriously, we then got the bell conserved and it had the date on there, 1681. And that was our moment when everybody agreed we'd found the Gloucester. But it didn't have the name of the boat? No, it didn't. No, ah. it was very unusual. But it did have two initials on, WW, which is the Whiteman Brothers, and they made the bell and they were appointed by the Duke of York to make bells. So uh, that was a great connection. But 1681, she sank 1682. Everybody was happy. Guys, absolutely amazing. So 2007 yep. was the discovery, and you just kept diving, what, every... Every season. So the diving season off our coast is generally end of May to September, end of September. Okay. Long way off. We're 30-plus miles, so it's technical diving. It's advanced technical diving. Yeah. And you can't always, because we're now back in a smaller boat, because we don't need you don't dive need vessels and, yeah. you know, it's just operating from a rib. So, yeah, effectively, um, you pick your windows. But we've done lots of surveys, lots of archaeological work. And we've done, over the years, many, many reports for the MOD and Historic England. And so we're working very closely with the right people. So what was the involvement 
with the MOD. So the MOD, because she's a Royal Navy, yeah. um, the Gloucester, uh, owned by the Crown, you need to get them on board very, very quickly. And because the governance needs, because we're in international waters, so there's no statute law to protect the site. So, okay. the, so you work very closely with the Navy Command and Historic England and DCMS and the National Museums to get the ideas to get the, the Gloucester into a charitable trust so you can then raise a lot of money to do all the serious work. <clears throat> and because it was in international waters, that means that any, if anyone could have dived it and found it and whatever and possibly looted it or Could've, yeah but they haven't yeah, no, no yeah but yeah. That, that, that is a risk um, but the biggest risk is the environmental so you've got sand waves moving through the site okay. so we see localized erosion around cannons you're getting spoons and glasses and shoes really small objects being exposed mm-hmm. so we, we photograph and measure in and then lift them by hand to the surface and conserve them to museum standard so we've been doing this over a number of years and that's what you can see in the uh, the exhibition you must have a very understanding wife. Um, very understanding. <laughs> Both twice, Lincoln and myself. But they knew what they were marrying into. Yeah. So if we sort of carry on that timeline, 2007. Yep. And then this year, or no, sorry, 2022, June 2022, it was finally sort of announced. So why? So that's going public. So what happened in 2014, just to really nail it, we got a mandate from Navy Command as a letter of empowerment to go off, find educational bodies like the University of East Anglia, create a trust, get trustees on board, use your imagination. And, and that letter gave us the opportunity to talk to all the right people. So we're very lucky to have Lord Danner on board as the chair of the Future Charity Trust, uh, the University of East Anglia, Norfolk Museum Service. So we got all the right people around. And because the exhibition was due to open, which it did this year, we went public in June and just so nice to share it with people i mean yeah and, so this is this is the, oh, this is one of moment. the questions yeah if we well based in our office you know keeping a secret from one person and then being released to the rest of the world webby's he, he everyone's a friend and uh, <laughs> so um he loves to share and so to keep that on board you know no pun intended but you must have been in just the years of knowing all what was going on what you'd got achieve you know what you achieved what you'd so far knew and yet you obviously couldn't necessarily openly go out to the to the masses in the same way what was it like holding on to that secret so we had to be very careful who we talked to so of course you've got to speak to people to move things forward so we operated under ndas but there was a very very small group of people and we were getting introduced to, very quickly to all the right people who understood our vision of what needs to happen to the gloucester but when we went public, we kind of knew we'd be right locally. We thought, you know, look east, EDP, maybe a couple of nationals. But the UEA done an embargo two days beforehand, and there was national TV from that point onwards. So the press release was incredible. Uh, and we're doing live interviews with people all around the world, you know, in Canada. It, it was nonstop for two weeks. I remember being at Great Armour, thankfully it was a sunny day, and the crew from the UEA was holding an iPhone up. And that was live interview with Sky TV. <laughs> It's just oh. like hilarious. And we had friends in Australia seeing it on their national news saying, hi, hey guys, look, you've just been on telly. What's up? You know, in New Zealand, all around the world. So and what I'm really pleased about that everybody's gone for the historical heritage. We haven't seen that horrible word, treasure hunters, find oh, gold yeah, and all yeah. that. And no, it's about the ship, the people on board and what we've done to date, which is fantastic. Yeah. And that's the story, isn't yeah. it? It's the historical, as I said at the beginning of this, the historical significance is... I mean, just mind-blowing. 
It is. And, and I think, you know, I do quite a few talks and we go back to dad who has died in the late 60s. So we've always been surrounded by scuba diving. And I was, I started at 12, Lincoln was eight. We're diving in Elsham Mill, local rivers and the broads and stuff like that. And then I remember the Mary Rose and, you know, yeah. and hanging out with dad's friends. And we've done loads of World War I and World War II shipwrecks. But actually the historical adventure, you know, trying to find something quite like this is what got us out of bed all those, all those times. Yeah, no, phenomenal. I think what we're going to do is we're going to take a, a break there and then we're going to, you know, we'll look to carry this on. So thank you, Julian. Okay, thank very you. good. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to get new episodes as they are released and follow us on Twitter. We are at Dewing Grain. Call Dewing Grain on 01263 731 or email info at dewinggrain.co.uk. The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by East Coast Design Studio in Norwich.